0: Good morning and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Malou Innocent. I'm a foreign policy analyst here at Cato's foreign policy studies department. Uh, Thank you all for coming. Before we proceed with today's forum, I'd like to direct you all to uh, our website, www.cato.org, where you can find an entire list of all our previous and upcoming foreign policy events, including a special two day conference being held January 12th and 13th on strategic counterterrorism policies. The subject of today's forum is Afghanistan a country that presents unique challenges not only to U.S. policy, but the international community. Afghanistan is the first out-of-area mission for the United States and NATO. Unfortunately, operational updates on governance and security operations warn that the Taliban, despite being rife with internal divisions, now has a dominant presence in many of the country's southern and eastern provinces. Some of those are now no-go areas for coalition forces. Due to force constraints, the 70,000 U.S. and NATO troops are not enough to keep insurgents from infiltrating previously cleared areas. As a result, there remains an immense task of political and economic reconstruction, which should be measured not in years, but in decades. Of course, when talking about Afghanistan, we must also talk about the lawless tribal regions on its eastern border with Pakistan, an area known as the Federally Administered Tribal Areas, or FATA. Militants use Fatah to set up camps, to recruit volunteers from the tribal population, and to build up their operations against the government of Pakistan and coalition forces in Afghanistan. Now, according to U.S. intelligence and NATO commanders, top Al Qaeda and Taliban militants, including Osama bin Laden, Ayman al Zawahiri, Mohammed Mullah Omar, Jalaluddin Haqqani, Galbuddin Hekmatar, Baitullah Massoud, and many others, are operating from Fatah and the surrounding provinces. These are the staggering set of challenges confronting not only the incoming administration of Barack Obama, but also the distinguished diplomats and scholars on the dais here today. Each panelist will speak for 10 to 12 minutes, and then afterwards we'll go ahead and open it to audience Q&A. Without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce our guests. Our first speaker is His Excellency Saeed T. Jawad, who serves as Afghanistan's ambassador to the United States. He also serves as Afghanistan's non-resident ambassador to Mexico, Brazil, Colombia, and Argentina. Ambassador Jawad returned to Afghanistan four months after 9-11 to assist the new country's state-building process. He served as the president's press secretary, chief of staff, as well as the director of the Office of International Relations at the presidential palace. He also worked with U.S. and Afghan military experts to help reform the Ministry of Defense and rebuild the Afghan National Army. Ambassador Jawad was instrumental in drafting Afghanistan's foreign investment laws and served as President Karzai's principal liaison throughout the drafting of Afghanistan's constitution. Ambassador Jawad was educated at Kabul University and the fileshe Wilhelm's University in Münster, Germany. He earned his MBA from Golden Gate University in San Francisco and worked for a number of prominent law firms. The ambassador has published hundreds of articles and commentaries in the United States, Europe, and Afghanistan. He is fluent in English, German, and French. Ambassador Akbar Ahmed is the Ib Khaldun Chair of Islamic Studies at American University in Washington, D.C., and in September 2008 was appointed as the first Distinguished Chair for Middle East and Islamic Studies at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. Ambassador Ahmed served as the High Commissioner to Pakistan, or from Pakistan to Great Britain and has taught at Princeton, Harvard, and Cambridge Universities. He received his Ph.D. at the School of Oriental and African Studies at London University, earned his M.A. in Education from Cambridge University, and his Bachelor of Social Sciences from Birmingham University. Ambassador Ahmed has produced a number of books and articles on Islam, international relations, and politics. His most recent book, Journey into Islam, The Crisis of Globalization, is available for sale upstairs. Ambassador Ahmed is presently on sabbatical, conducting a study of American society through the experiences of the Muslim communities. Film footage of his tour throughout the United States can be seen on Journey into America. Worldpress. dot com. Ms. Caroline Waddams is senior policy analyst for national security at the Center for American Progress. She focuses on Afghanistan, Pakistan, and terrorism issues, and leads the Center for American Progress Foreign Policy Terrorism Index. Prior to joining the Center, she served as a legislative assistant on foreign policy issues for Senator Russ Feingold. Wadams also worked at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington, D.C., and in New York as a research associate on national security issues. Prior to the Council on Foreign Relations, she worked at ABC News in New York. Her overseas experience includes work uh, with the International Rescue Committee in Sierra Leone and two years in Ecuador and Chile. She served as a U.S. election observer in Pakistan's parliamentary elections in February 2008. She is the 2005 Manfred Warner Fellow with the German Marshall Fund and a term member at the Council on Foreign Relations. She received her master's degree in international relations from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Dr. Ted Galen Carpenter is Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. He's the author of 10 and the editor of 10 books on international affairs, including Smart Power, Toward a Prudent Foreign Policy for America, which is also available for sale upstairs. He is also the author of America's Coming War with China, A Collision Course Over Taiwan, The Korean Conundrum, Bad Neighbor Policy, The Captive Press, Beyond NATO, and A Search for Enemies. Dr. Carpenter is contributing editor to The National Interest and serves on the editorial boards of Mediterranean Quarterly, The Journal of Strategic Studies, and he is also the uh, author of more than 350 articles in policy studies, and his articles have appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, LA Times, Financial Times, Foreign Affairs, and many other publications. He's a frequent guest on radio and television programs in the United States, Latin America, Europe, East Asia, and other regions. Dr. Carpenter received his Ph.D. in U.S. diplomatic history from the University of Texas. And with that, I'll turn the podium over to our excellent speaker, Ambassador Jawad. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much for the kind introduction, ladies and gentlemen, distinguished panelists. It's a great pleasure being back here at Cato Institute once again to talk about Afghanistan and issues related to Afghanistan. Uh, Today I will focus mainly on speaking about the pressing issues for Afghanistan in 2009. The most important issue, of course, for us is to work with the new administration to make sure that some of the promises that we made on for the additional uh, resources and attention to Afghanistan that are, they turn into strategies and policies. Uh, we are uh, – there's tremendous amount of enthusiasm in Afghanistan for uh, President-elect uh, Barack Obama and also the team that he is putting together. Many distinguished individuals that will be serving in the Department of State, uh, National Security Council, and other areas are, know, are known to Afghans, and they know Afghanistan and Afghanistan issues very well. The uh, pressing issues for us in 2009 is to improve security in Afghanistan, to enhance governance, to improve the capacity of the Afghan government to deliver services and to provide protection, to work with our partners at the NATO and the U.S. and others to prevent or reduce the number of the civilian dead through the military operations, uh, and also work with our neighbors in the regional uh, powers to uh, stabilize not only Afghanistan but also the region that's becoming more and more volatile. An important milestone is also will be reached in Afghanistan, which will be the presidential election in 2009. Uh, since we don't have a whole lot of time, so I will be brief uh, to give you uh, an overview of the security situation in Afghanistan. As you have seen it in the media reports, the security is still fragile in Afghanistan. The capacity of the Afghan government to particularly deliver services to provide protections through judicial system, police, and others are still limited because of the limited resources that we have received in the past six, seven years. There aren't enough boots on the ground, both on the part of the international community as well as the Afghan National Army and police force. We are building that capacity, but the current The number of the troops available in Afghanistan are not adequate to overcome the security challenges. There is still a lack of coordination between many different partners that we have in Afghanistan that are bringing different degrees of commitment, different type of equipment, different philosophy on fighting uh, terrorism and fighting uh, Taliban in Afghanistan. Unfortunately, the terrorist sanctuaries in in the neighborhood of Afghanistan are still operating and are open, and two very dangerous trends that we see in the region is the, is the Pakistanization of Al-Qaeda and uh, the Talibanization of Pakistan, that it has severe impact on Afghanistan, the region, and potentially the world. Just to give you a quick snapshot of increased uh, violence in Afghanistan, uh, these two charts compare 2007 with 2008, as you can see, especially in the east and south, we are facing tremendous uh, amount of uh, Taliban and terrorist activities. And if you see also, for instance, the sophistication of the type of the uh, IEDs and EFPs that are, using, that are being used in Afghanistan, we see a trend where uh, more and more um, Afghan-Americans and NATO soldiers are losing their lives on, on to IEDs, EFPs, and, and in a lot more sophisticated type of, of explosive and more sophisticated type of terrorist act and activities especially on along the roadsides in Afghanistan. Um, What do we need to do in order to to change the situation in Afghanistan especially uh, security being the first priority in the country? We have to strengthen the capacity of the Afghan National Army and police force. This is going to be a project that will take time for on the short term, we do need a surge of, of uh, international troops, uh, particularly U.S. troops, to overcome some of the security challenges that we are facing, especially in the south. Um, it is not just necessary the number of the troops. It's also finding better ways to improve the fighting capability of the troops. We... We have significant uh, formation of troops in certain provinces in Afghanistan where the the security situation is deteriorated because those uh, troops from different NATO countries are constrained either by the national caveats or uh, lack of uh, proper equipments or other issues. Uh, It is equally important to both improve the quality and the quantity of the international troops in Afghanistan. Um, in the south, where we are facing increased challenges, especially Helmand, Kandar, and other areas, we are very grateful for the very important role that Canada, UK, and others are playing. Uh, but I think on the long run, we will be better off to see a much bolder U.S. Uh, role on the military command uh, all over Afghanistan, especially in the south. The presence of the NATO country is a very important, significant political asset for Afghanistan and United States. But when it comes to the military operations, the Afghans and the United States should really do what it needs to be done and welcome everybody else's uh, participation and contribution. To to build the Afghan National Army and police force, we have made some progress. We are we have built an Afghan National Army that is seventy six thousand strong. It's a truly national capable army that is well received all over Afghanistan and it has shown extremely good fighting capabilities uh, we have just were able to to convince uh, our partners uh, especially the united states to increase this number to 135000 which is still much smaller than than any army including the army of for instance of iraq which is a much smaller country a lot more flat comparing to afghanistan if you use any military calculations uh, from the Western uh, military academies or from the Eastern Afghanistan, will need something like 200-plus army in order to be able to, to maintain the security on its own. Um, the, um, uh, the, uh, the progress with the Afghan national police has been slow. Uh, truly, uh, we, we, the police force is not actually properly equipped. Uh, there are some leadership problems with them. We, have, we are focusing right now on that problem, and the United States is again taking the lead role in building the national police force in Afghanistan. And we have recently appointed one of our most capable ministers, Minister Atmar, to lead the Ministry of Interior, where we have had uh, challenges. Uh, and, and this is very important because the role of the military in post-conflict situation is significant, but the, the police is the face of the government. They are there every time. And, and to have a capable police force is extremely crucial. In addition to the focusing on the military, of course, it, everything that's taking place in Afghanistan is not military. You cannot fight terrorism by killing terrorists. You have to improve the life of people. You have to provide services. You have to provide protection to the civilian. People should feel that. Secure. People should feel that, that if they are siding with us as the Afghan government or, or you as, as the international community, they will be better off. Uh, therefore, we, it's very important to improve the life of people. It, as you know, you, the Taliban were a government in Afghanistan. There is no sympathy whatsoever for the cause of the Taliban, for the type of, of the government that they had in Afghanistan. It's all based on, on, on tyranny, on terror, on submission of people, especially being extremely harsh on women and others, the reason that people tolerate some of these bad guys on the countryside is because they are not sure that you and I can protect them. They are pragmatic. When, when, when the night when the Taliban comes in, they will behead a teacher, they will burn a clinic. They are extremely brutal. So people, there is no sympathy for that cause. There is no, but people are afraid, and and, and we have to show that we have the, the the capabilities as part of the international community and the African government to be present there on long term, to improve their life, to provide protection to them. Also important is that to engage the Taliban, we, this process has been going on since we, in the past five years, we are trying to recruit some of the low-ranking Taliban members, those who have not committed serious crimes, to join the political process. We don't want to start another circle of revenge in Afghanistan, but it is a difficult issue. It's difficult for Afghans, they have seen the brutalities of the Taliban, it's difficult for our partners who are having their sons and daughters actually fighting in Afghanistan, and they question that, well, what is the point if, if, if you're fighting there and then still we are, we are talking with Taliban. This is going to be a long-term process, but two points that are very clear. The, all the, 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 the talk with the Taliban that's taking place has two clear conditions. First, they, they have to uh, accept the Afghan constitution. This is an accomplishment by the Afghan people and our partners all over the world. And second, they have to quit violence. Under these two conditions, they can join the political process. Um, on enhancing governance, another very important part of, of, of providing security to the Afghan people, the Afghan government was established as part of the partnership with the international community. In the areas that you have worked with us, you have assisted us, such as the National Army, such as education, such as healthcare. we have made progress. In the areas where there was lack of proper attention and resources, such as police force, such as narcotics, and others, we are facing serious challenges. Uh, rule of law is another example. So we we are implementing reports, uh, reforms to, to fight corruptions. We recently, the President, have removed a number of the ministers, and uh, uh, we are building the human capital necessary, particularly to 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 build up a, a functional judicial system, and, and again, as you know, its judicial system cannot be built by, by, by importing or bringing in a, a foreign consultant. You have to have a capable Afghan judge, a capable Afghan prosecutor, and this takes time to, to be established both as institutions, but more importantly, as, in, as capable individuals. Um, the tendency right now is also to, to empower uh, the provinces uh, to, to move away gradually from the extremely centralized uh, concept of governance. Another issue that I want to cover uh, um, uh, quickly because you probably have seen it also even in today's media about uh, civilian uh, or Afghan security officers, uh, police forces and armies being killed during the military operations. This is not acceptable to the Afghan people, to the Afghan uh, political leadership, and we have to do whatever it takes to prevent this. The only group that is benefiting from that are the terrorists. What they are doing is they they are hiding among civilians. If there, is a, if there is a wedding, if there is a funeral, they will, all they have to do is, is just send one of their bad guys and just shoot it, what, it, it, the uh, oncoming convoy or, or, or a patrol of the, of the international forces. There, and, and, and if there is a retaliation and then the, the, the compound is targeted, we all lose. We as Afghan government lose, the Afghan people lose, the international community lose, and the winner are the, the Taliban, the bad guys. There has to be a better mechanism to prevent this. It's happening. One reason that's happening is because there is a shortage of, of, uh, of t- troop and proper equipment in Afghanistan. Instead of high attitude bombing, if we could send uh, commandos to carry out uh, surgical operations and hopefully even get some of the bad guys alive, we would be much better off. So we have to improve the, the equipment that are needed and, and if needed, more troops or troops that are more mobile uh, and agile to to respond to that and we know we cannot bring a uh, civilian dead to zero it's it's a war zone and uh, the bad guys would, would love to do whatever it takes to have more afghan civilians being killed they are in fact targeting purposely the afghan civilian but when and have uh, when it happens it's very important to to use the power of apology to say we are sorry we didn't mean this we regret that um And the other mechanism is also to build the Afghan air force, for instance. So if it happens, this kind of mistakes, then it's it's our fault. It's our military force or our air force force uh, uh, problem. So I have to move uh, quickly. Um, On the regional uh, uh, issue, we are are seeking also cooperation from Pakistan. We are very much welcome. the, The recent development in Pakistan, especially the civilian government in Pakistan, we are Supporting the civilian leadership and the civilian government of Pakistan very much. I think this is, this is the best that Pakistan can offer and the current situation. Uh, but they have a very difficult task ahead of them. The, the bombing in Mumbai was, had different targets, including the civilian government in Pakistan. Um, we are also trying to, to use the, 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 the spiritual influence, the political weight of other countries, such as Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and others, to bring the regional countries together to, to fight uh, extremism in Taliban and have stability. Uh, Central Asia, I'll, I'll skip that. Very quickly, one more minute left on, on the elections. In November of next year, we'll have our presidential elections. The preparations are underway. Voter registration is going fairly good, and it will be implemented in four phases. We have started with the easiest provinces first, and we'll move on into more challenging area. This is going to be a difficult process. It's going to be a costly process. But one important thing that I expect from, from our partners that we expect is that to be very clear that there will be no shortcuts. There will be no plan Bs. Yes, the election is difficult. The election is costly. Security will be an issue. But not having an election is a lot more costly for Afghanistan and for the political process. I really thank you very much. I want to be on time. So uh, if there are questions later on, we can address it. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ambassador Jawad. And now, Ambassador Ahmed.
2: Distinguished uh, panel, distinguished ladies and gentlemen, this is my first visit to the Cato Institute. I'm delighted to be here, especially on a topic of such urgency, Afghanistan seven years later. I will take a historical overview Let me start by saying that the events in Mumbai have just complicated matters and moved them up several notches for the new administration. If you look at the pattern, there was a bombing in Kabul. The Indian embassy was attacked. Then not long afterwards, something happened in Islamabad. The Marriott was blown up. Then we had Mumbai, and following Mumbai, we had the attack in Peshawar. So there is a pattern, and I want you to keep that in mind. Let me now move to Afghanistan itself. There is a saying on the Afghanistan-Pakistan border, and please remember this saying, and some of you are taking notes, note it down. I took revenge after a hundred years, and I took it too soon. Now, there is this saying because society in that part of the world is still quite tribal. The code of tribal conduct is called Pashtun Wali. that is the code of behavior. And that code comprises of notions of honour, of revenge, of hospitality. The world is seen through an ethnic filter. The word Afghanistan means Afghanistan, the land of the Afghans. The Afghans are the Pashtun tribes. Across the border in Pakistan, Balochistan is the land of the Baloch. Waziristan, the land of the Wazir. It doesn't mean that there are other important tribes not living there. It simply means historically this is how people see that part of the world. We now move to nine eleven. The shock, the anger, the distress, completely justified looking back. It was a moment of great distress in the United States. And there was an urgency, a sense of something must be done. But I believe, looking back, in just a few days after that uh, terrible incident on 9-11, I was at the National Press Club on a panel, and I urged my panelists, fellow panelists, not to go charging into Afghanistan on the basis of either ignorance or arrogance, because Afghanistan has been a graveyard of empires over the last 2,000 years. Everyone has come and gone. Alexander the Great, Changez Khan, the British, the Soviets, the Mughals. These are the greatest empires of their day. And I urged sense, common sense, wisdom. There was anger. I appreciated that. But that had to be tempered with wisdom, with long-term strategy. But if you base a foreign policy on the two pillars of arrogance and ignorance – The tribesmen in that part of the world, and I mentioned the previous empires, never forgive you. They may just about, you may just about get away with one, with arrogance. And you have so much super uh, firepower, or perhaps ignorance. But the combination will not get you any victory in the end. And seven years later, alas, we are where we are. Benjamin Franklin, the wise founding father, had warned that what begins in anger often ends in shame. So what happened? The United States went charging in into a very complex tribal society. It was seen, the perception, I'm not saying it was right, I'm not saying it was wrong, I'm not saying it was the right thing to do, but the perception grew in the Pashtun areas, that is the lower half, the eastern parts of Afghanistan, that the Americans are now the allies of the Northern Alliance that is the Hazaras, the Uzbeks, the Tajiks. And in the context of tribal society, and keep that thought in mind, in the context of tribal societies, the Americans now became another tribe allied to the enemies of the Pashtun. So suddenly the Taliban, who had been removed from Kabul, suddenly found a base, first in Afghanistan and then most fatally across the border, in the tribal areas of Pakistan. And when I say fatally, I mean fatally for Western NATO-slash-American strategy, troop success on the Afghan side of the border. And remember, all this is happening when the American media is talking of Afghanistan as the quote-unquote good war compared to the bad war in Iraq. We are assuming that Afghanistan is the model good war. No one is realizing that The seeds of defeat have already been planted. Now, seven years later, what are we seeing? Go back to 9-11, the few days after. What were the objectives of this Afghan adventure? To capture Osama bin Laden and Mullah Omar? To remove the Taliban from the landscape of Afghanistan, perhaps the face of the earth? To change Afghanistan into a modern, viable democracy? to remove the basis or the base for anti-Americanism as a source of possible terror, none of this has happened. None of this has happened. And if it's happened, it's very partially happened. And what has happened, which I think is going to be something that the Obama administration will have to face very quickly and may have to pay for, is that in the process... Pakistan is in danger of being lost. So you may have gone charging and bungling into Afghanistan and ended up by losing a major player on the side technically in in terms of being one of the closest, most valued allies of the United States of America. Take a quick look at Pakistan, a nation of 170 million people. So it's a much bigger nation than Afghanistan and Iraq combined. It is nuclear. It has an established army, command and control structure in place. It borders China, Afghanistan, Iran. And with the developments in Afghanistan, the Taliban and their locals, let us not reduce them to comic book characters. These are rooted in Pashtun culture, which means the entire eastern belt of Afghanistan, overlapping into Pakistan. As the war proceeded to get stuck in the quicksand in Afghanistan, the Taliban moved their base of operations to the tribal areas. The tribal areas, and I have some idea of the tribal areas. I was in charge of Waziristan, which is the most difficult uh, area of the entire tribal areas. Traditionally had three pillars which upheld society. There was tribal leadership. Those are the chiefs, the elders, based in lineage. There was government administration, central government and its authority. And then there were the religious figures. The variety of religious figures, the imams, the Taliban, and so on. Now, what has happened since 9-11 as a direct consequence of the developments in Afghanistan is that pressure on the Pakistan army, pressure on the Pakistan government as a response to Afghanistan and the so-called war on terror, the two pillars, that is the tribal leaders, the tribal elders, and central government authority have been marginalized to the point of being totally ineffective in the tribal areas. And as you know, nature abhors a vacuum. So when those two pillars are removed, the vacuum is filled in by the third remaining pillar, which is the religious figures. So suddenly, for the first time in history, the geniuses who devised this strategy for that part of the world, the armchair critics and experts, suddenly managed to create for the first time in history, Taliban running the tribal areas of Pakistan. This has never happened in history. The balance between the tribal chiefs and the religious clerics has been demolished. Now, follow the consequence of this sequence. The tribal areas are in turmoil. And forget Afghanistan and the turmoil on the other side of the border. Now Pakistan gets involved with the activities of the Taliban. The Taliban are now roaming around in the settled districts of Pakistan. In the Swat district, which is the great tourist attraction of Pakistan, where foreign tourists would spend weeks and weeks and enjoy that the scenic beauty of Swat, that has become a war zone. Mullahs are running amok there. His Excellency talked about the Taliban on that side of the border. Here are Taliban in Swat, roaming around, closing girls' schools, arresting men without beards, and imposing their rule. Complete anarchy. This is happening in the settled districts of Pakistan. So we have suddenly a challenge to Pakistan itself. And where that ends, I'm not so sure, especially after Mumbai. What are the signs that we are seeing ahead of us? The signs are, I would say that this is a critical moment in our relations with that part of the world. It's not just Afghanistan. I would urge you not to see the problems of Afghanistan in isolation. His Excellency is absolutely right. You need to see Afghanistan slash Pakistan. And I would even say further go into India, because what happens in Kashmir will impact Pakistan. What happens in Pakistan will impact the tribal areas and will impact Afghanistan. So you need to see this as a region in holistic terms. I am seeing a critical point, a turning point. Unless very quickly Obama's team begins a process of vigorous strategic overhauling of the present policy, unless that happens, I am seeing the greatest danger signs on the ground. I am not talking theory, I have been on the ground, I have administered those, those tribes, I know the terrain. The signs for me, the most dangerous sign, I want you to keep this image in mind, and I hope there are Obama experts who are reading more of history than the previous administration. The signs are Dr. Bryden. Write that name down. Dr. Bryden, the sole survivor, the sole survivor of the entire British army that had gone into Kabul in great triumph. He was the one man, the Afghans, with their brilliant sense of strategy and irony, Left alive, so that at the garrison at the Jalalabad garrison on one cold winter morning, the sentry looked out and saw one half crazed man on a horse, and this was Dr. Bryden. That was all that was left of the grand army that was sent to conquer Kabul. When I'm told that two strikes in two days in Peshawar blowing up 200 military vehicles, I begin to think of Dr. Bryden. So this is a time for radical overhaul, for radical surgery of the policy that has so far landed us in a situation where 200 vehicles can be blown up and we seem to have no answers. I would say let us take this moment for reflection, for thought, and hope that The new administration will pick up the urgency of a policy that works on the ground, that is effective, that is not rhetoric, words and ideology, but is practical and pragmatic on the ground. We want to deliver something that gives peace to the people there so that they can carry on with their lives. They have been disrupted right across the region, Afghanistan for the last three, four decades, now Pakistan. And I'll end with this. The resentment in Pakistan, with all the aid given to Pakistan from the United States, the resentment, the anti-Americanism is at a ceiling. And the reason is... Thousands and thousands of Pakistanis feel that we had nothing to do with 9-11. We had nothing to do with this war on terror. And it, the consequences, the unintended consequences of the war on terror are that thousands of Pakistanis have been killed. We are now being blamed. We are being squeezed and squashed between different world powers. And where we are going to end up as a nation is now in doubt. So there are big question marks and therefore a great deal of frustration and anger. So let me end on that. I'd be happy to discuss any of this in the Q&A. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Ambassador.
3: Good afternoon, everyone. Um, Malou, thank you so much for setting this up, and thanks for including me. Um, it is an honor to be part of um, such a great panel. I want to just talk a little bit without repeating what um, the two ambassadors have said um, uh, uh, where the where we are seven years after the us led invasion of Afghanistan and what the the next administration needs to be thinking about. I think it 's clear from what we 've heard, and if you 're watching the news at all that the trend lines are all very negative, um, and you see that with security, the drug trade governance, and even popular support among the Afghan people um, all of these all of the trends um, point us in the point in the wrong direction, and it's deeply worrying for people who are watching this um, and what I find especially worrying is not even just um, the situation on the ground, but how it's being perceived, by, how the international mission is being perceived by Afghans, the international community, and even with and even the the public within the United States, it seems that there is slowly uh, a softening of support for the for this mission. Um, you see it um, with a recent poll by the the Asia Foundation, which um, showed that. of Afghans now believe the uh, country is moving in the right direction. That's compared to 64% thought that it was moving in the right direction in 2004. Um, and you see increasing pessimism from Afghans in terms of how they view the international presence and the Karzai government. Um, and then you see among pr- the press in um, NATO countries a increasing skepticism about the government, the government of Karzai, and um, and what uh, and and how and whether the international community can accomplish those goals. I see it even when I'm watching the U.S. press that there seems to be this growing skepticism, um, especially from the left about um, uh, President Karzai, but also um, a a question of what are we trying to accomplish in Afghanistan? And I see this among the public and also among people who – analysts who are looking at Afghanistan – People are starting to question do we do we do we really want to do the nation building that we had signed up for, uh, or are we just trying to get rid of uh, this the terrorist safe haven um, How ambitious do we really want to be um, and though those that skepticism is um, is very worried because it's it's clear that if you want to turn the situation around in Afghanistan, I think it's going to be a very long term commitment. It's going to be very costly, um, and it's going to it's going to require. A a full international effort using military and also uh, ramped up civilian tools. And I think you see that with the the fact that the with all of these strategic reviews underway by the U.S. government, by the NSC, um, by CENTCOM, by others, that there is this feeling in the United States, especially that things are not going right. We've got a problem and our strategy is not working. Um, I see. Five major challenges in Afghanistan, which I will quickly go, go through, and I think they've been discussed um, to some extent, but it's clear that the first uh, the first challenge is uh, clearly that there's a, a growing insurgency in Afghanistan. It's been the deadliest year. 2008 has been the de- deadliest year thus far. More uh, foreign soldiers and Afghans have been killed than ever before. Increasingly, you're seeing um, aid workers targeted, foreigners targeted, uh, which wasn't the case, uh, a couple years ago. Even Kabul is increasingly under threat. And now you're seeing, um, as Ambassador Ahmed uh, discussed, that the supply lines going into um, Afghanistan from Pakistan are now being um, successfully targeted. And U.S. policymakers are trying to figure out, okay, where do, how do we get our supplies into Afghanistan if um, if they are not safe in Pakistan? And that's um, that 's dis- disconcerting to say the least um, but it 's clear that what what our military what military commanders say on the ground is that it 's not that the it, while the insurgency is getting stronger it 's not that the insurgency is is so strong it 's very um, actually uh, it's it's a a disjointed or uh, it 's made up of disparate groups it 's not a unified insurgency you have Taliban, you have um, Pakistani uh, jihadist groups like Lashkar-e-Taiba, you have the Haqqani network, you have Hizbi Islami led by Hekmatyar, Um, you have criminal elements. This is a a diverse group of actors. Um, So it's Again, the insurgency itself is not so strong. The opponent is not so great. It's really that the opposing forces battling that insurgency are so weak, and that brings me to these other challenges that we have in Afghanistan, the fact that the the, the, govern, the government of um, Afghanistan remains so incredibly weak. You're seeing increasing levels of corruption. Um, Afga- Afghanistan is now seen as one of the 10 most corrupt places on earth, an increasing criminal, criminalization of government. Um, and the Taliban has increasingly exploited this weak governance to exert control in parts of the country. Um, the director of national intelligence for the U.S., Mike McConnell, said that the Karzai government controls only about 30 percent of the country, um, and while the Taliban controls about 10 percent, other groups say that the Taliban controls much more than that. Um, a third challenge is just that the, the, the slow pace of reconstruction, um, which has been deeply disillusioning for Afghan for the Afghans um, there's uh, there was a sense that the Bush administration was really going to implement a Marshall plan that hasn't happened um, the, the fourth challenge um, is the high as you all have read about I'm sure the drug trade and that Afghanistan is still believed to produce about 93 percent of the world's opium economy not only does this fund the taliban to a certain extent but it uh, um it also corrupts the the afghan government um it's believed to account for about one-third to one-half of afghanistan's economy um the the fifth challenge is um the disjointed international effort um again as i said the insurgency is not so strong it's that what we're trying the all of the other forces that should defeat the insurgency such as the international presence should be should be able to to battle it more effectively and we have a very disjointed international effort where there is a lack of coordination between af the, af- the afghan government and other countries and among nato countries and among uh, agencies within countries. So, our civilian aid, for example, in the U.S. government, our U- U.S.A.I.D. is not talking to the Pentagon, which is not talking to C.I.A., which is um, not talking to State. So, there's there are big problems there. Um, in terms of what uh, the Obama administration should do, um, I think most of the debate thus far has centered on troop levels, and I think that's often sort of seen as the quick fix. It's often how we are the, this, the government has, or how us foreign policy has been focused is through military solutions. And I think the debate has reflected that. Um, I think that, the Obama administration does seem to be talking about the um, what it needs to do in Afghanistan and Pakistan far beyond the troop levels. But the focus keeps coming back to um, troops. I think one of the major things that um, the first thing that needs to happen, I'm going to outline um, six things quickly. Um, there needs to be the Obama administration needs to have a dramatic strategic rethink of what we're trying to accomplish there. What are our goals? That should be obvious, but I don't think it's obvious anymore to uh, to Americans, to the international community, to the Afghan government. We need to get refocused on what our objectives are. I believe that the state building mission needs to occur, but um, that that case needs to be made again. I think um, as both uh, ambassadors indicated, the approach Secondly, what the Obama administration needs to do is the approach must be much more regional. Um, You and Obama has said uh, President-elect Obama has discussed this. You can't fix Afghanistan without fixing Pakistan. They are so linked. And as we see with the Mumbai bombings, you've got to be thinking about India as part of this. Um, Our policies since September 11th have not been coordinated and consistent among countries. We've stovepiped our policies that needs to change. Um, Thirdly, I do think that troop levels need to increase, um, but that that is, that's not where the Increasing troop levels is not going to turn the situation around in Afghanistan. It's, it's so much more than that. Um, it's – while the troops need to increase to do training for the police and the army, um, I think some border control, um, uh, some counterterrorism strikes to reduce the, the reliance on air power, um, the increasing troop levels cannot be the emphasis – um, I think that there needs to be a real surge on the civilian side of the equation, which is a major focus, refocus on the governance issues. How do you extend the legitimacy of the, the Karzai government while, while or the Afghan government while focusing on corruption issues, um, rule of law um it's it's reform and ex- reforming and extending the governance of the Karzai government. You, there needs to be a, a large increase in efforts for reconstruction and development throughout the country. I mean, even the um, the the loot general Root, loot review that was leaked recently. I think it was in the Times, talked about how. Um, They've been critical that the Bush administration hasn't done enough of the, the nation-building piece, that they've been so focused on the military solution. I think there's got to be a much greater emphasis on the reconstruction and development um, parts of our policy. Um, finally, I would say that political reconciliation, as Ambassador Jawad um, indicated, is an important part of the of where Obama, the Obama administration needs to go, that obviously is, must be Afghan led. I think we should be supportive of it while recognizing that we have to know where our red lines are. Um, how much, um, how, How? where should the, it, it's not for us a it's not up to us to decide, but I think it needs to be clear that the, and I think ambassador Jawad indicated this, that you can't, you have to indicate where you're not willing to negotiate. And, um, um, and that would probably be on, um, I think issues around, uh, women's rights, um, um, violence, things like that. Um, I think I'm going to just leave it there. Um, Thank you very much, and we'll just, I'll just get into more detail if you have questions about some of those recommendations. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Carolyn and Ted.
4: I want to uh, thank Malou for organizing uh, such an important event. Uh, one of the hazards, of course, of speaking last on a four-person panel is that a lot of the uh, ideas, a lot of the material can be uh, covered before one even gets to the uh, the podium. I was kind of mentally slashing major portions of my presentation as I listened to the, the other three uh, experts on this issue. Uh, I've written on Afghanistan uh, periodically now for better than two decades. In fact, the third study that I ever wrote for the Cato Institute was back in 1986 when I wrote about the Reagan Doctrine, and one of the major sections, of course, of that study was on the support for the Afghan Mujahideen. Uh, more recently, uh, right after the U.S. led invasion of Afghanistan in the fall of 2001. I wrote a piece for the Los Angeles Times in which I said the United States faced a fundamental choice. We could aim for a quick and less than complete victory in Afghanistan and withdraw quickly, in which case we were likely to achieve at least a reasonable measure of success, or we could stay on trying to remake that society, engaging in a full-blown nation-building mission in which we would be there very likely for decades and probably fail in the end. Well, as usual, the Bush administration did not listen to me. I've become entirely accustomed to that over the years. And here we are, better than seven years later, and the situation is looking increasingly ominous. A few years ago, Afghanistan was described as America's forgotten war. Well, that is no longer the case. Uh, Iraq overshadowed it for a long time, but increasingly the focus is on Afghanistan. And, well, it should be. Since July of this year, there have been significantly more U.S. military fatalities in Afghanistan than in Iraq. U.S. military commanders are increasingly alarmed at the deteriorating security situation and the Taliban and al-Qaeda have regrouped and are mounting larger and more lethal attacks in wider areas of the country. Why have things gone so wrong? Well, there are a number of reasons, and I'm going to cite them, I think, in roughly ascending order of importance. The first reason is that we forfeited whatever chance we had of winning a quick and decisive success in 2001 and 2002. Uh, In large part because U.S. policymakers took their eye off the ball. As 2002 went on, American officials more and more focused on the situation in Iraq and the likelihood that the U.S. would invade that country. And we even began to divert key military assets from the Afghan theater to Iraq, including, I think, most important uh, special forces units. I don't know if we could have scored a clear victory over the Taliban and al-Qaeda during that period. I think probably the best we could have done would have been to administer severe blows to those organizations, and that they would have been a long time in recovering from those blows. But whatever chance we had, that chance is long gone. The second reason that we've encountered so much trouble is that, uh, contrary to the propaganda, our NATO allies have not been especially helpful. Now, I do have to admit, some countries, Britain and Canada in particular, have made significant military contributions. Other key allies, though, such as Germany, not so much. Indeed, we have German forces uh, stationed in the north, where there is virtually no threat and no fighting. And we've seen the media reports, of course, the last couple of weeks, that German troops seem to be very good about drinking beer and not much else. This is reminiscent of some of the problems we had with the Allies in Iraq. For instance, uh, Japan uh, sent a token force from its self-defense forces. However, uh, they were forbidden to be involved in any way in combat, in fact, to be uh, in any situation where combat was a danger. And therefore, Japanese forces had to be protected by military units from other countries. Uh, This is sort of a symbolic military deployment. It has no uh, operational utility. The South Koreans uh, were a bit better. They stationed their forces, however, up in Iraqi Kurdistan, again, where there was almost no danger of fighting. A number of the allies in Afghanistan have done the same thing. And then we have the caveats, the restrictions on the use of forces, where we find a number of the countries, in essence, uh, having their troops as nation-builders, not combat fighters. U.S. military commanders, I can tell you, privately are furious at these restrictions, but they remain frustrated in getting them removed. The third reason why we are failing in Afghanistan is the drug war. I have a piece available outside where I examine this in some detail, but the United States is increasingly putting pressure on the Karzai government and on NATO to get serious about eradicating the opium trade. As I've argued many, many times, that is a foolish, counterproductive mood. The importance of the drug trade to the Afghan economy cannot be overstated. Various estimates put it anywhere from a third to 60% of the country's gross domestic product. The United Nations estimates that 509,000 families are involved in growing opium or in some other aspect of the trade. Now, if you extend that out, not only on a nuclear family basis, but on the basis of extended families and uh, clans, you can bet that at least 35% of the population of the country is dependent on the drug trade in some ways. Now, the argument in favor of... Uh, Pursuing a vigorous drug war is that a lot of the money goes into the coffers of the Taliban and Al Qaeda, and that's absolutely true. However, they are not the only ones profiting from the drug trade. Many pro Karzai regional leaders, warlords, and many, many ordinary farmers also benefit. Some of those people, particularly in Helmand and Kandahar provinces, are now swinging back to support the Taliban in part because of anti-drug measures. We need those people as intelligence sources and as political and military allies against the Taliban and al-Qaeda. The drug war in Afghanistan is counterproductive. We need to keep our priorities straight. We can never win the broader counterinsurgency war if we insist on simultaneously fighting the drug war that would disrupt The financial livelihood of large portions of the afghan population a fourth reason for the problem the safe havens across the border in pakistan and that issue has been discussed on several occasions so far uh, in this policy forum and i think it is important to emphasize that it is an artificial distinction to assume that the military operations in Afghanistan can be divorced from the security situation in Pakistan. Indeed, from a military standpoint and in many other respects, the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan is almost meaningless. It is a highly artificial border, one of the many, many achievements of the British foreign ministry that have caused so many problems for us in subsequent decades around the world. Pakistan is inextricably linked to the problems that exist in Afghanistan. Um, When I wrote that study back in uh, 1986, I noted Pakistan's support, its diversion to a highly disproportionate level of military and economic aid to the most radical Islamic factions inside Afghanistan, and that the U.S. went along with that policy. I think that is one of the worst strategic blunders that Islamabad could ever have made. Uh, I think that ranks right up there, along with the support for the Taliban in the 1990s, with uh, the Israeli government's decision to encourage this new group called Hamas in order to cause trouble for Yasser Arafat, also not one of the more inspired strategic choices. Final reason for our problems... Excessive Nation-Building Assumptions. As I warned in late uh, 2001, we have drifted into an open-ended nation-building mission. We seem to assume that we haven't achieved victory until Afghanistan becomes an orderly, prosperous, secular, liberal society. That is far beyond our ability to achieve Unless we plan to stay for generations, and maybe it's not even achievable then. We don't need to have Afghanistan become the Asian equivalent of Arizona for U.S. policy to succeed. We have, or should have, a fairly limited objective, and that is to reduce the danger that Afghanistan will be a safe haven for al-Qaeda the way it was in the years before 9-11. Now, that's going to be difficult enough to achieve, but there is at least a reasonable prospect that that goal can be attained. Nation-building, completely transforming Afghan society, to say nothing about saving Pakistan and transforming that country, far, far beyond our capability and certainly far beyond our wisdom. At the time that the U.S. invaded Iraq, General David Petraeus asked tell me how this ends that should be a required question of all US policymakers before any intervention is undertaken anywhere now of course the focus right now is on a troop surge a la Iraq and Petraeus himself has advocated sending more than another 20,000 troops to augment the force already in place I used to support the idea of a temporary surge of military forces in Afghanistan, and I've changed my mind. As been, has been noted here, the history from Alexander the Great to the British in the 19th century, the Soviets in the 20th century, shows that Afghanistan is relatively easy to conquer, but nearly impossible to occupy, administer, and control on a long term basis. We don't want America to prove that point once again. We may need to eliminate the notion of a definitive victory at all, that the best we can do, perhaps, is to damage and harass al-Qaeda rather than eliminate it or even cripple it. And I know that's awfully tough for Americans to accept. We're used to definitive military victories, uh, Lee surrendering at Appomattox, the signing ceremony, Japanese surrender on the deck of the uh, USS Missouri, and so on. Well, the world has changed a lot, and those victories are a lot harder to achieve. We have to accept the realities of Afghanistan, the realities of regional power brokers, of less than a Western-style democracy. And that's going to be a messy situation, but it's also one... That worked pretty well before the Soviets and Pakistanis began meddling in the nineteen seventies and the U.S. thereafter. We may need to see whether we can cut a deal with the Taliban to divide that faction from its Al-Qaeda allies. Now, this has been referred to in various places as the Anbar model. I think the point of Petraeus's strategy in Iraq that actually has worked reasonably well to factionalize the opposition and to be blunt about it, to bribe and buy off the opposition. I don't know how long that will work in Iraq. Uh, Again, this may be simply a, a temporary fix, but in the short term, it has worked reasonably well. There are no easy answers. I'd be the first to admit that. But we need to start thinking about an exit strategy. We need to be thinking about that now and not let this mission continue in a way that drifts on for years or even worse for decades that is the key decision for the incoming obama administration and i'm very much afraid that the president elect is going to be tempted by the wannabe nation builders on his foreign policy team to make the wrong decision thank you
0: Thank you to all the speakers. Thank you so much for your insight and your analysis. Um, I'm going to exercise moderator privilege and begin uh, the first question. Um, Given the history of the country and the power imbalance between the center and the periphery, uh, is it best and is it feasible for the United States and NATO to begin moving towards a radically decentralized conception of governance and allow greater local autonomy and allow these provinces and districts and the far-flung areas uh, to begin a self-governing, become self-governing units? And if that is feasible, um, how can the United States and NATO then prevent these areas, uh, these decentralized regions, from them becoming safe havens for terrorists? How do we navigate that balance? Anyone on the panel?
1: Thank you. Um, very good question. Uh, I think it's a very important uh, matter that is also being raised in the context of uh, Afghanistan being a tribal society and the tribal structure of Afghanistan. Those who have been to Afghanistan lately knows that the problem of Afghanistan is not a tribal problem. When we have problem in Waziristan, we have problem with Baitullah Massoud. He is not a tribal leader. He, was, he is there because of his connection with the Arabs. He is there because of his connection with the Pakistani military. Mullah Omar, he's, he's never been a, a tribal leader in Pashtun, not even a full Pashtun. He is a mullah, and mullahs have very low-ranking position in tribal society. So what we have, and when, of course it is preferable to, to look for local solutions to work, but what you have in the reality on the ground in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, a, a young uh, Pashtun in Pakistan or in Afghanistan, has no interest whatsoever. He is, he is poor, he is illiterate, but he has no interest to put a suicide belt in and, and blow up a, a, a hotel in Bombay. Why you should do that, even if he is, if he is, if he is angry? Even if he's angry at President Karzai, why he would blow himself up in his own, his own village? So what we are facing here is institutional support for extremist group on one side, And more importantly, on the local level, the real tribal leader is gone. The 19th century Afghanistan, the 19th century tribal area, this doesn't exist. What you are facing in in Fatah and other areas is a young extremist. Baitullah Masood is a good example, holding a copy of a Quran in AK-47. He is neither a tribal leader, has no tribal affiliations. This is the reality on the ground. So when we talk about re-empowering, Uh, in working with local authorities. The issue is that the local tribal leaders, the local authorities, the the pristine tribal structure is long gone. It's been since 1979, either through the infiltration of the army, through the money that came from foreign sources into Afghanistan, through the infiltration of the the Arab terrorists and others. The tribal structure is gone. It doesn't exist. We should not fool ourselves. So we have to work with, uh, with, 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 with with the local authorities, but should be very mindful not to work with the extremists who have imposed themselves and not to work with warlords who are in case in Afghanistan or narco traffickers. So we have to reach a, a delicate balance. We, we, on one hand, we, we, we have to build an institution in the institution in the central government. On the other hand, we have to work to re empower the, the, the true tribal structure that existed once. And the problem that we are facing, it's not because of the tribalism. Tribalism is everywhere. And even in New York City, people are proud of being Irish American or others, but that does not impact the way you live, the way you act. So um, clearly uh, there is a need to, to, uh, to uh, make sure that working with the local does not mean working with elements such as Baitullah Masood or, 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 or uh, Afghan warlords or narco-traffickers inside Afghanistan.
2: Um, will you I'd like to take a crack at this question. It's a really important question. It links with the uh, idea and practice of governance of civil administration. Now, much of the discussion in Afghanistan has been focused on military. We're talking of surges. We're talking pouring in more military troops. Uh, His Excellency described the police structure, the importance of the police. I would like the emphasis to shift on civil administration. Now, Pakistan had a very established civil service structure. It was centuries old, and it worked. By and large, it worked. But over the last decade, military rule has marginalized it to the point of ineffectiveness. And again, go back to the structure I pointed out, when that happens, and if you're a tribesman or a villager or a peasant or a small farmer somewhere in some rural area in Pakistan or across the border in Afghanistan, what do you really want for your family? You want justice? If something happens to you, you want justice? You want law and order. You don't want your cow to be stolen. You don't want your daughter to be picked up and taken off and raped by the local landlord. And you want to have some economic betterment in your life. Now, when you don't get these things, and if you have access to some communal television set and you switch it on, and you're being told that uh, your religion is being attacked, that your culture is being attacked and demonized, that you are generally being called or identified as a terrorist when you think you've been a victim of terrorism, and when you think your country has been invaded, rightly or wrongly, this is the perception of a lot of people, and that the local governments, whether in Afghanistan or Pakistan, are far too keen to impress their quote-unquote masters. This is how people see things at that level of society. In Washington, you get a building up of a great deal of resentment and anger because you really want to get on with your lives. There is a collapse of civil service structure. So it isn't an army solution alone. It isn't a police solution alone. There is the requirement for ordinary life to be conducted. Who is conducting that? Where is the civil service structure? Where is the magistrate? Who gives the law and order? Who ensures law and order? Who ensures justice? Who ensures that the dignity where the individual Afghan of Pakistan deserves and wants is given to him? Afghanistan has been at the end of three decades of turmoil. There was the Soviet invasion, there was the 1990s, the emergence of the Taliban, the chaos, the turmoil, the interference of outside powers, and Pakistan has been in that grip for the last decade. So I would say as much as the emphasis needs to be on military and police and so on, I have been an administrator in the field. I know that that is just one arm of policy. The other equally important arm of policy needs to be Governance, civil administration, the emphasis on education, on health, on schools. And unless the two work together, one without the other is completely meaningless. So, the more troops you point, and unless you stabilize that individual in the village or the tribal areas or the rural areas, you're not going to have much satisfaction and you will continue to give a pool or an ocean, I would say. To any so called terrorist or Taliban minded person who wants to do violence, who wants to blow up things, a bridge or a school or whatever, because you're automatically giving a fish an ocean to swim in. It's that ocean you need to tackle. And that cannot be tackled by simply bombing and killing and uh, torturing people. And finally, when you start throwing things from 30,000 feet high, and this is happening too frequently and very often killing wedding parties and wedding guests, and this happens again and again, there is a sense of outrage. These smart bombs are not particularly smart. And what that does is that feeds into the sense of having lost your own country to outside powers. And as I pointed out, that region, not just Afghanistan, see it in terms of the region, that region has seen empires coming and going. Uh, Incidentally, just before I finish an article, I'd like to highly recommend you read uh, just up on the Huffington Post by Frankie Martin talking about exactly these issues and the need for Obama, President Obama after January to be playing the game in that part of the world in a certain way. Uh, My own book on Waziristan is called Resistance and Control in Pakistan, in which I try to analyze what goes on in that part of the world in terms of my own experiences. Thank you.
3: I'll just make a couple of uh, quick comments on that. I think a lot of people are talking about the need to have a different governance model because uh, what's what's what we've what the international community has been pushing so far um, with the Afghan government has been a very has not been very successful. Um, you have a number of very corrupt local officials. Um, the Taliban have exploited that, um, th- these vacuums of power and um, and the feelings of disillusionment by the Afghan people. Uh, many Afghans feel that the, the government of Afghanistan um, is as predatory in certain areas in the south and east, especially as, um, as the Taliban are. And um, many have turned to the Taliban, not because they necessarily support what the Taliban brings, but because um they they don't have good alternatives um so i think this the top down approach that has been pushed has not been successful it's been a top down governance approach but also a top down development strategy um and i think people are trying to figure out now how to what would be an alternative approach um and it's very very difficult, as um, Ambassador Jouett said, because a lot of the I think a lot of the tribal structures have already been destroyed in certain areas where you would want to um, strengthen that local governance. Um, I think there's some interesting um, kinds of models being implemented um, in terms of development. Um, where they are t- where there is an effort by Afghans in the international community to have things being locally driven, um, and that is with the National Solidarity Program, where you basically have local development councils, um, gr- groups of, of individuals and communities that are um, deciding what their priority development projects should be, and they're given a... a um, Twenty to sixty thousand dollars to implement those projects, and that's creating a sense of ownership um, it's creating su- successful development projects but it's again it 's not top down it 's bottom up and whether there could be similar efforts like that on the governance side, not just with development but beyond but broader than that, I think is very worth exploring it's it's just going to be obviously very challenging thanks
4: I want to uh get to the audience questions as quickly as possible. Let me just make one comment. Uh, and I think we ought to consider the possibility that because of the decades-long meddling by the Russians, the Americans, and the Pakistanis, that Afghanistan is is irretrievably broken, and that whatever stability eventually emerges in that country is going to come after an agonizingly long period and will have to come from within that uh, this is simply beyond America's ability or the international community's ability to fix. And because of the blowback effect into Pakistan, because of its own unwise policies, that perhaps Pakistan itself is now so broken that we're not going to see a resumption of stability anytime soon. I know those are unpleasant things to consider, but I think we better consider them because that may in fact be the reality.
0: Great. Thank you so much. Um, please wait for the microphone to come to you and uh, please make your questions very short and in the form of a question, preferably uh, the gentleman down here in front.
2: Uh, Raul Kohlberg Kolberg. Two, two questions, which have come up, as it were, with one shoe dropped, but I'm sort of waiting for the other shoe here. Uh, the first on the drug situation. Uh, do we just write that off, uh, or is there any at any point in terms of giving up on the growing, but it can intercede in its distribution, or uh, is it just a, 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 we ought to go off and spend our money elsewhere in terms of what to do? Uh, with the election coming up, uh, who are the prospective uh, candidates? Uh, Mr. Karzai going to be around again, or who
1: else... Uh, is on the horizon to possibly fill the candidate role. Thank you. An excellent question on drugs. And uh, Dr. Carpenter has mentioned this very in a very good presentation. Too much emphasis has been made on eradication, which is not – it's counterproductive. It's same similar approach has been done in other countries. Because when you the, – the, the, the best policy to fight narcotics in Afghanistan or anywhere is to prevent cultivation. Because once it's cultivated, it's too late – if if you if you eradicate, you push the farmers into the hands of the terrorists and traffickers and the bad guys. If you don't, the money of narcotics will feed lawlessness, uh, corruption, and, and terrorism. And how you, can you prevent cultivationists to give an alternative to the farmers and to create, more importantly, it's not a magic crop that you bring in like saffron or, or pomegranate. No, people have been farmers for thousands of years in Afghanistan, create more value for their existing crop. If they are growing grape and turning the grapes into raisin, this is the least value that you can get from grape. Have, make them, help them out to get that grape into Dubai, only two hours, two hours flight away from Kabul. They'll get a lot more money for that, and they will do it. So, and by, by the nature of human being, nobody wants to be a criminal if you give them an alternative. But if, if they have to feed their family, they will do whatever, whatever it takes. Um, uh, and, uh, of course, the, 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 most of the money being made in, narco- in narcotics is not the farmers. It's, it's the trafficker, the processor. And, and, and so interception, looking into ways of, of, of preventing the, the, the chemicals to come in and others. And this is an area that, frankly, we uh, Afghan governments always blame for that. That's an area that no one is doing anything. It's, it's our problem. And and, 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 and and while if, if well, this says fighting narcotics is part of fighting terrorism. It it has to be a clear decision by the military forces of, of all all the countries present here to take a stronger stand, especially in the area of introduction. Help us outbuild the institutions and, and others. So um, on uh, and on the issue of the of the uh, candidates, there will be. There will be no shortage of candidates running. Absolutely, there will be many people running. And, and, and frankly, many times and during the presentation, they mentioned President Karzai. Nothing's going to change. You, nothing is going to change if you just change the president of the country. If the system is not properly supported, if there is no true partnership between the Afghans and the international community, changing or unchanging a president does not make a big difference. The president... If it were so easy to issue a decree tomorrow and it says we are not going to have corruption in the country and we will have a, a, a perfect country with no corruption, believe me, anyone would have done it. It is a very difficult task. It is a very difficult task. What we see more and more is, is, is that the, the, the Afghan government and the Afghan, uh, sometimes even the Afghan people are blamed for the failures. People are talking about reducing our expectations. What expectations? What kind of what kind of fo- oh, very, very, very high-ranking goals that we set for the Afghan people? We, we haven't delivered, you haven't delivered them electricity. 11% of the Afghan has access to electricity. So why we are talking about reducing our expectation? What have we delivered? Well, how, how high were our goals? You are short the Afghan people once again. What you are doing, what you did after the Soviet invasion. You didn't come to Afghanistan because we ask you to come. You come because it was necessary for the Afghan people for the stability of the region. And, and if you walk away, that's, you have this option, but the price of not doing is much higher. And there's a lot of talk also about, about the invasion in British, the real invader in Afghanistan, the terrorist. We are begging you to come and build our country. You are not an invader. What interest do you have to be in my country, except for helping the people and fighting for freedom and making the country more secure? The invaders are the terrorists who are killing a teacher, who are beheading a woman in Afghanistan for the sole uh, crime of, of, of being able to teach. And then we will say this is tribalism? This is, this is what the Afghan people demand and deserve? It's, I, I really get sometimes very upset when they talk about you have to reduce our expectation. Our expectation was very modest. We haven't delivered on this expectation to the Afghan people.
0: Thank you, Ambassador. Anyone else on the panel would like to
1: take the question? I'll just make two comments. First
4: of all, uh, the United States uh, adopted its policy in Afghanistan in the 1980s not because of any great concern about the Afghan people. We wanted to cause major problems for our superpower rival, and this was regarded as a high-leverage way to do it. Now, that may be a very cynical policy, but that was the reason. Um, With regard to the drug war, I'm always amazed at uh, drug warriors around the world when they are not going to allow mere decades of utter failure to deter them from their strategy. We have to be realistic about that situation in Afghanistan. Given the prominence of the drug trade, asking uh, that the drug trade be eradicated in Afghanistan is very much like asking the Japanese government, to make war on its electronics and automobile industries. It's not going to happen. Economic realities are always going to intrude. And as far as crop substitution programs and economic development programs as a way of dealing with this problem, these are strategies that have been tried over and over and over again in other drug-producing societies, primarily in South America. And at best, they achieve anemic and disappointing and usually temporary results. And more often than not, they fail utterly. And again, for a very simple economic reason, the traffickers can always bid up the price, always achieve the required degree of temptation to get enough people involved in the trade to provide that supply. As long as the demand exists globally and as long as we have a global prohibitionist policy that creates this enormous black market premium, we are going to have uh, criminal elements involved in the drug trade in Afghanistan and many, many other countries. That's not going to change, no matter how hard we try to eradicate it.
0: Thank you, thank you Ted. Uh, we should move on to uh, questions from the audience. Uh, the lady right there in front of the camera.
5: Uh, thank you. Um, I'd like to touch on two points, one made by Ambassador Jawad um, and one by um, Dr. Ahmed. The, um, right now there seems to be already a military surge part of the strategy review appears to already be underway before anything else is announced or in place. and uh, Mr. Ambassador, you touched very briefly on the role of the NATO versus the U.S. troops in the future. And it sounded like maybe a little bit of a a separation that recognizes these uh, caveats that nations have placed on their troops. And the second part of the question is, and maybe this would be uh, more directed to Professor Ahmed, when we're talking about the surge, what does or should this Uh, surge have to do with um, a new approach to Pakistan? Thank you.
0: Thank you.
1: Thank you. Um, Yes, um, uh, presence of the NATO is an important political asset for Afghanistan, for the United States. It shows the consensus of the international community on the need to be engaged in Afghanistan. But different NATO countries are bringing different capabilities, uh, different commitments, different philosophies as far as fighting a harsh war such as taking place in Afghanistan. That's why the real burden of, of, of fighting this war effectively and successfully is on, on the shoulder of the Afghans and Americans. And we should welcome, we should do whatever it takes to win this war. And we should welcome wh- whoever is offering what they can offer. To, to put extreme pressure on NATO to perform at the same level is, is unrealistic. We have a lot of small nations. They are doing their utmost. They are doing their best, and we are very grateful for what they are doing. But it is unrealistic to to expect, for instance, to for instance, for Latvia to to perform as is, 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 uh, like Canada. That that is not going to happen. It's just the nation, the philosophy, and other. Uh, and and unless we have a uh, uh, a search for. for uh, for, to provide a secure environment for the NGOs, for the development, for the true tribal leaders, for the civil society, for the government to function, n- no other measure will be successful. We have to make sure that, that there is the road that is being built between the two provinces that people can travel on that so that the former can bring his goods to the city uh, as surge is needed on the short term.
2: Uh, This also – my response also relates to a comment that Ted made about uh, Pakistan, and uh, you've asked me about Pakistan. I'll focus on that. Pakistan, unlike Afghanistan, does have and did have a structure of administration. It has an army, an established structure, a command and control structure, an army which is over half a million, and combined with the armed forces, maybe about a million. It has a police structure, a civil service structure. My point is that because of the weakening of the civil service structure, the person who administers the district, the person who administers justice, law and order, who oversees the administration of the the district, that structure has been marginalized over the last decade. And the direct consequences of that that has been that the tribal areas where also the political administration has been marginalized, that has created a vacuum which has allowed the... Taliban to emerge there, and a very virulent shape and form of the Taliban. And His Excellency quoted Bethullah Masood. Now, Masood, incidentally, is a Masood, so he does belong to the tribal structure there. In Pakistan, tribal structures still remain very much in place, whether in Balochistan, whether in the northwest frontier province. The agencies are based upon a certain tribal structure, and that is how people operate. So when Betullah Masood finds himself in the Masood tribe, he has to be countered by people dropping bombs, which have they've been doing from 30,000 feet high, which has not been very successful, but then also countered within tribal society. There have to be alliances and networks formed that can challenge him at source, at base, which is perhaps his agnatic rival, his cousin, or the opposing tribal leader who then takes him on. I find this an increasingly curious and depressing situation where people like Mullah Omar, not the Mullah Omar, but another Mullah Omar, who can actually give press conferences in Wana, which is the headquarters of South Waziristan Agency, talking to the BBC. Now, that is absolutely amazing for me. It's like uh, Osama bin Laden giving a press conference outside the White House. It's exactly that analogy for the tribal areas. But that is happening because civil administration has been so marginalized. The army has not been able to administer as the civil administration could do. So I would say the surge needs to very much work hand-in-hand in in tandem with creating a strong civil service structure, recreating in the case of Pakistan. And that was one of the lessons we are learning from Anbar and the Iraq situation where General Petraeus and, more specifically, his uh, civilian advisor, uh, Colonel David Kilcullen, emphasized the notion of building tribal alliances, reaching out to people, giving them respect, giving them dignity, and creating friends in tribal society itself. It then began to sh- change the nature of the confrontation from a straightforward military engagement to a much more nation-building effort at that level of society. So yes, Pakistan is very different and yet similar because it's facing serious political law and order problems. It is now being f- is functioning as a democracy. Therefore, there is much more hope. The danger I see in Pakistan is that if the civil democratic structure collapses, and you have martial law once again as a consequence of the breakdown of law and order, we will be back to square one because very few problems of law and order are solved on a long-term basis by the military alone. That has not worked in that part of the world for the last half a century.
0: Thank you, Ambassador Ahmed. Um, I guess we should go back to audience questions, Um, the two in the front, I guess, uh, Ben and uh, David. We can just take those two together, actually, since we're running a little short on time.
6: I just got a – I'm Ben Freeman. from Cato. I just got a a comment and a question. Uh, Ms. Wadams, you you mentioned – I think you were quoting Obama. You said uh, we can't fix Afghanistan unless we fix – Pakistan, I'd just like to suggest that we need a moratorium in this town on talking about fixing other people's countries along the lines of what Ted said. I, there are best practices that you can do in these wars if you want to have them, but it's really not up to us to fix them at the end of the day. And I, I, I think that, you know, we can keep learning that lesson. I mean, people talked that way in the in the 60s on in this development uh, science we had on college campuses where we were, thought we could develop nations, which got us into Vietnam. So we need to, I think, dial that back a little bit. Uh, my question is for uh, Ambassador Jawad. Um, nobody uh, mentioned taxes, and uh, I, don't, I don't, you know, we're, we're talking about doubling the size of the Afghan army, roughly. And as far as I can tell, we're paying for it. So I'm just sort of wondering, uh, how's it going with the tax collection in Afghanistan, uh, customs revenue? And uh, I'll pass the mic over to my colleague.
7: My name is uh, David Ritgers, uh, also a colleague at uh, Cato. Prior to coming to Cato, I was a uh, special forces officer and served three tours in Afghanistan Uh, So uh, I commend the comments of uh, Ambassador Ahmad regarding the insurgent as the fish in the sea of the population. Uh, As we have this pending surge, um, I would implore uh, Afghanistan to use this extra force wisely. Uh, And and Ambassador Jawad, Jawad, I would ask you, is there any consideration in the Afghan government of peeling away some of these uh, uh, narcotic-driven economies Uh, They have power of their own. They don't need us to provide income for them. Uh, Is there any uh, will to ask the Americans not to engage in drug eradication uh, and essentially try to drain the swamp economically, as the Soviets did militarily, and and peel them away from uh, the insurgent forces?
1: Sure. Um, I'll be very brief on, on the question of tax. Uh, when, we, when we started, actually, uh, 2002, uh, the total revenue that was collected in Afghanistan generally was $30 million per year. Uh, last year, it was $620 million. And our projection for this year is the total internal revenue that we collect part of tax, and mostly due these taxes are still low in Afghanistan, will reach 850000000 million. Uh, I'll just add a small note, but that building the military in Afghanistan is not a luxury. It's a necessity. For the price of one international soldier, we can have in Afghanistan 80 Afghan National Army officers fight and die for the country and for the cost. So if you we, if we build this, that the Afghan National Army, even if you pay a little bit more for it, or you pay for it a little more for it, it's a lot more cost-effective, it's a lot more sustainable than having the presence of the international troops, and especially... Uh, the, the human capital of, of them actually losing their life, sacrificing themselves, it's much better for us to do it, and we will do it. So building the army is not a luxury. It's a necessity. It's, it's an expense that, that, that is, for, in order to have a safe and secure operation in an airport here and in, in, in Washington, too, you have a lot of expenses that you have to pay for. That's, uh, but it, what we are very much willing to take this, this, this job upon ourselves. Uh, the, the revenues have increased to $85 million. We have been asking our international partners from the very beginning to help us out with narcotics. It's not part of the mandate of any military force in Afghanistan to do anything on narcotics. In fact, there has been instances in the past, two, three years ago, that vehicles were searched for explosive and they come, they, so they come up on opium or, or heroin. They look the other way.
0: Ms. Wattams, would you like to...
2: Uh, can yeah. I comment to the uh, comment made by the Kato colleague to what I had said about fixing? Uh, no, I want to make a comment because you said it's not uh, our job to be fixing nations, and I agree. If it wasn't your job, you shouldn't have gone in to fix Afghanistan in 2001 because you went in there, you have a responsibility. As the ambassador pointed out, there is a feeling in that part of it, not only in Afghanistan, also in Pakistan, that America is a fair weather friend. That when it needs the local people, it goes in there, allies with them. In the 1980s, Afghanistan was destroyed fighting a war that was not essentially its own war. It was fighting a proxy war in a sense. And the destruction that was wrought on Afghanistan, people, properties, this was historic in proportion. And yet the Afghans fought because that that is part of their nature, to be independent people. Now, if that is the case and you are there, you can't simply pack up and say it's not our job to fix people or fix nations. If it isn't your job, then don't go there. And if you're not following the sequence that I pointed out, the Mumbai strikes and then the linking of the region, then this is what's going to happen. And this will affect your colleagues sitting next door and people in in Afghanistan, now American troops. Because if there is a tension ratcheting up between India and Pakistan, Pakistan's first reaction is going to be to pull its best troops from the tribal areas – and the western frontier to the eastern frontier. When that happens, my friend, and your friend is nodding his head and not nodding it this way, he's nodding it up and down, which means he agrees with me, and he knows more about the situation on the ground, I suggest, than you do, because he's been fighting there. He knows that the pressure on him, that is the American soldier there, will increase a hundredfold, because that will give the Taliban an emboldened vision of what will be possible. He won't have that pressure on his back from Pakistan. He'll have a free um, a charter, as it were, to cross into Afghanistan. He's already barely being contained. And it will give him the depth in the tribal areas and the population to continue a very vigorous engagement on that side. So these things are linked. We can't simply abandon. That is, America can't simply, simply abandon its position in that part of the world. It cannot with… Um, oh. When, when you say not fix, it is in linked with that because if you are not there on the ground, what are you doing there? You can't simply be there as a military presence. Then there is no legitimacy.
0: L- let's allow Ms. Wannamaker oh, to actually I
6: retort. Say, I, I heard. I didn't hear you say anything about fixing the the country. Uh, I wasn't quoting you. And
2: uh, my my. Sorry, p- you looked at me, so I presume that you wanted me to answer that.
6: Oh, uh, and I, I my my point is only that we need to help people. Uh, but, you know, the idea of, of fixing to me implies that it's up to us uh, what happens. in Pakistan. Can I
0: respond? Sure. I, yeah, let's have Ms. Wadams uh, respond real quick, actually. I One second. You, um, I, don't,
6: I don't disagree about that at all.
3: I would just say that it's cl- the U.S. clearly cannot fix things on their own. Um, but we need to engage. And um, we've made – we've written – I've written a number of reports um, at the Center for American Progress on Afghanistan and Pakistan. And one of the major things that we've recommended is basically that – the U.S. has to exercise much more humility in its foreign policy, that we cannot think that we can do everything on our own, that we can force things down uh, other countries' thro- throats, and that we have to work much more effectively, especially in a place like Pakistan or Afghanistan, with uh, key countries Keep uh key partners who ha- are very influential, like in Pakistan, we have not worked effectively with China and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. we haven't worked effectively with numerous countries that are that have serious interests and influence in pakistan we We need to be doing a much better job i there is the, the again I just don't believe that the u s can walk away from these issues we We need to continue to engage, and we have to as I said. Be humble at the same
0: time. Unfortunately, we've actually run 10 minutes over. I am a huge fan of vigorous intellectual combat. So this was great. Uh, Thank you so much to our panelists, our distinguished uh, panel. Thank you so much, everyone. And thank you all for coming. Uh, Please join us upstairs for, for lunch. Thank you.